Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. By your turn, let me say thank you uh, for letting us get away for a few weeks here. We had a great time on vacation. For those of you who were not aware of what was going on, we actually went on a Disney cruise uh, to the Caribbean, had a great time. We've never been on a cruise before, so we didn't quite know what to expect, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Got to see some interesting things while we were gone. For example, in uh, <clears throat> after the cruise, we spent several days uh, in the Orlando area just doing some of the normal touristy Orlando-y things, but I saw something while we were there that I've never seen before. I don't even know how to explain it to you, so I'm just going to show it. It's sky riding evangelism. For two different days while we were in Orlando, there was a plane flying around writing messages in the sky. So I took a picture of this one, you plus God equals smiley face. There was another one, Jesus forgives, ask. Uh, and I'm not actually making fun of him. At first, I was kind of I know this is going to shock you in my normal skeptical and sarcastic self. I said a few things, but then later I was kind of like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know like, what the Lord could possibly do with that. But aside from that, I also don't know, like, what's the motivation here? Like, who was sitting around in a meeting one day and thought, you know what we need to do? <laughs> we need to hire a skytyper to go out and write, you plus God equals smiley face. That's well. <laughs> Okay, whatever, that's fine. Uh, saw that, that was interesting. We uh, got to run into some old friends along the way on our way home. We got to stay with Tony and Sheila Turner there near Hilton Head. It was so good to see them. Just a reminder of, of so many people who have gone out from Cornerstone over the years. I mean, you could literally probably cross the country and stay with people every night from, from Cornerstone because we are all over the place now. But it's amazing also how even though they're gone, they're still like family. They're Cornerstone family. And it was so good to see them and spend time with them, and we had a great time. Now, there is one confession I do need to make to you, um, one ethical transgression I need to confess, a moral lapse of judgment, I guess I could call it. It happened on our last day of vacation. I was, uh, we were at this like resort-ish kind of place in the middle of Orlando, and I was in the water, and I kissed a girl. Her name was Cindy, and I didn't, I, yeah, it was just one time, uh, but someone did take a picture of it. And my, now, in my defense, Cindy is 50 years old and nearly 600 pounds. That doesn't make it right. I just wanted you to know that that was the case. Anyway, here is the picture. <laughs> this is me kissing Cindy, and I told Jamie that she meant nothing to me, nothing at all. I'd like to tell her it was on accident, but in reality, it was on porpoise. I was sick all week long. I, like, Tuesday and Wednesday, I couldn't even talk. I could barely sit at my desk, and I'm like, I've got to make a joke about this. <laughs> and it landed. Man, I'm so happy. All right, joking aside, we had a great trip. Thank you for letting us go. Thanks to Toby and Chris and everyone else for filling in while we were gone. We thoroughly enjoyed our time together. We're going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 11. Paul writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, that is. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct excuse me, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified." But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to come back now into the book of Galatians and to begin working through your text, to begin understanding it and trying to apply it to ourselves so that we have not just a better understanding of your word, though we certainly do want that, but an understanding of the, of the truths, of the issues that are here and how those things directly impact us. Because the issues here in Galatians, the issues there amongst the believers in the church of Galatia, they're the same issues we are dealing with. The same struggles and temptations and, and, and lures that would pull us away from the sufficiency of Jesus. They're just as alive and well today. And, and so we as believers need to be aware of these things. We need to understand what they are and why they're wrong. And then how to maintain our confidence in Christ and Christ alone. And so I pray that you will use your word to push us to that end, to open our eyes, to even reveal to us where, where we allow our confidence or have allowed our confidence to, to drift away from Christ alone and, and to move towards other things that will never be enough. They're never satisfied. They never, they're never going to be acceptable to you or by you. So help us to remember through our time in your word this morning why Jesus is the one in whom we must put all our confidence, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure I've shared this uh, story at some point in the past, but I think it's been long enough now that I can share it again with you. And if you remember it, don't give away the, uh, what happens. But one of the uh, best birthday presents I ever received was given to me by my wife before she was my wife. When we were dating or engaged, I can't remember. I think it was uh, the year 2000. I was in Chicago on my birthday, and she bought us two tickets to go see an afternoon, weekday afternoon Cubs game at Wrigley Field. Now, the reason I liked it so much wasn't because I was a big Cubs fan at the time. I certainly wasn't. Uh, actually, I really was moving out of baseball as a sport I was even really interested in. But she knew I did like it in the past, she knew I liked history, and she knew I liked uh, iconic places and, and locations, and so what is more iconic in American baseball than Wrigley Field, right? The only other place that would probably match that is Fenway, a park I'd still love to go visit someday. But, but Fenway and Wrigley, these are the absolute pictures of American baseball, and so for me to go get to watch a game 
there at Wrigley Field was quite a treat. Now, if that was all that there was to this gift, it certainly would have been a fun day and would have been one of my favorite ones probably no matter what, but it was what happened after we got to the game that really made that particular uh, day so much fun. It was an afternoon game, like I said, a weekday afternoon, and so when we get to the park, there's like nobody there, right? It's empty. It's, it's the Cubs in 2000, so nobody cared about the Cubs back in 2000. Uh, so the park is empty, and we're sitting somewhere up on the third base side uh, under the awning, and uh, we're basically by ourselves. We have a whole section, effectively, to ourselves, and that's pretty much how the whole park looked at this point. So we're sitting there, and we're just talking, waiting for the game to begin, and as we're doing this, we see this group of about 20 to 30, I would say, older people, people in their 60s, 70s, mainly women, but a few men mixed in, walking up the stairwell towards our section. And I don't know how you would feel in that moment, but me being me, I'm like, don't sit with us. Don't sit near us. Go to that section. Go across, you know, go somewhere else. Stop where you're at. I did not want them to come up to our section, but sure enough, out of the entire (laughs) empty park, where are their seats? Then the two rows directly behind Jamie and there's no one on our right, there's no one on our left, and now our 30 people or so have sat in the two rows directly behind us. However, that worked out to be a wonderful thing because this wasn't just any group of older people, this was a group of tourists from Ireland coming to visit America, many of them for the very first time, and their tour had brought them for some reason to Chicago where they were going to watch the great American pastime, baseball, played at Wrigley Field for the very first time. And so what I thought would end up being quite aggravating ended up being extremely fun, because as soon as they sat down, they were like, hey, I can't do an Irish accent, especially when I'm sick. <laughs> I don't even try, but they're like, you know, what's your name? And they start talking to us. They're already a little drunk at this point, <laughs> quite honestly. They came up loaded, preloaded, and had more on the way. Um, and so they're, they're talking to us, and they introduce themselves, and we start asking them questions, and then the game's beginning, and because they're brand new to the sport of baseball, they start asking questions. What's happening? Who's that person? Why did he do that? You know? and, and the funny thing was is none of the questions were super difficult, but for, for someone who's grown up in baseball or grown up in a particular sport, you probably don't even think about a lot of those questions just because... I don't know, just the way it is. Like, you just know it. You don't think about it. And so they're like, you know, what's the guy hitting the ball called? How many tries does he get? Why did he have to run that? Could he run the other way if he wanted? You know, (laughs) these are not illogical questions for people who don't know the game. It makes sense why they're asking them. And so uh, for me, like I said, I grew up in baseball. I played baseball. I watched baseball. I was kind of moving out of it at that point. But I, I had known it my whole life. And I'm sure that there had been some point in my past where I myself, had asked those kinds of questions, right, when you're young and you don't know the game. But I must have been so young that I have no memory of it. It's just something I knew. It was like second nature to me. But for them, baseball was new, and so they didn't understand what terms to use or why anything was the way it was. Apart from the beer they were drinking, the entire context of the day was completely new to them. The same thought occurred to me a little bit last week when Chris was preaching. And Chris, I promise I was paying attention but I did go off on a little tangent in my mind for a moment. He was, was preaching. sitting behind you then? That's all I know. I was about to make a joke. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I, he was preaching on Jude last week. And if you were here, you remember that uh, you know, Jude is a Jewish writer. And he is obviously writing to a Jewish audience in, in that letter. Because throughout that letter, especially in that middle section there, he quotes or uses at least at least. 10 Old Testament anecdotes or stories or characters in pretty 
pretty quick fashion. And I got thinking about this, and I thought, you know, okay, if you come from a Jewish background, those 10 references then would make perfect sense to you, right? You would understand them. You, you probably, kind of like us in baseball, would, would maybe never even have known a time in your life when you didn't know those things. You had heard them, those stories from your earliest days, and therefore they'd be second nature to you, and you totally would get it. But then I started thinking, what would it have been like for the first Gentile who read the book of Jude, or the letter, I should say, of Jude? And what, what was that person thinking? When, you know, when Jude references Cain, what, what did you think? Well, a lot of you grew up in church, in American churches, where you've heard Cain's name. You know who Cain is. He is the son of Adam and Eve, the brother of Abel, the one who killed his brother, the first murderer. You actually know quite a bit about Cain. And so for you, that's not so weird. But, but imagine someone who did not grow up in church, even today, who would read Jude, and they read Cain's name, and they're like, Cain? Like, sugar cane? Candy cane? What kind of cane are we talking about? A walking cane? I don't know who Cain is. You would have to explain that to them, right? Or you think about Korah, for example. He mentions Korah. Some of you don't know who Korah is, and you grew up in churches, right? Or some of you at least maybe have heard the name, but you couldn't explain exactly why Jude used Korah there. What about Balaam? It's like, I know he had a donkey, but I don't really know about Balaam and why he was so bad. And this is for people who grew up in a church context. Again, imagine a Gentile back in Jude's day reading that for the first time, and, and it's all brand new to them. They have no context of what's going on. They have no idea. Without that shared Jewish context, those illustrations are, don't instantly make sense. Now, you can learn those contexts, right? We can explain those contexts, but that's going to take a little bit of work. And that's what happened to an extent that day at, at Wrigley Field, is these Folks are asking me questions about the game of baseball. I'm trying to give them a basic understanding of the game to at least help them process what's going on in front of them. Did I explain everything that was going on? No. Could I have pulled them aside and like, tried to draw diagrams and go through rules and explain strategy and plays and why things worked the way they did? I could have tried, but that would have taken hours and the game would have been over before we got through all of that. But they at least needed at least needed to understand a little of what was going on. Well, this is what I hope we've done with our little mini-series mini we finished up before I left on vacation. My premise was that I felt that there was a great deal of biblical illiteracy in the world today, but really specifically even within the church today, right? There's just a lot of things people don't know. And so I took several weeks to look at a few biblical and theological ideas that I hoped would help us as we began working through the text here in Galatians, just so we could understand what's going on. And I certainly, certainly did not cover everything that we could have covered. We could have taken a, a year's worth of messages and gone through all kinds of points to try to help us be prepared to walk through the text, but we didn't do that. Well, I think though we have enough of an understanding now to get moving into the text, and we'll hit other things as we go. As you hopefully will recall, in the larger context of verses 11 to 21 here, Paul is describing an incident that took place between himself, the Apostle Peter, and both the Jewish and Gentile believers in the city of Antioch. And I will not rehash the specifics of that incident, since I have covered it a couple of times already. Uh, but just note, as you look now in your text, that the description of this incident is found in verses 11 to 14 specifically. Now, I have shared with you in the past how in Greek, uh, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, the language that the letter to the Galatians was written in, there is no punctuation. 
In fact, ancient Greek is written in all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. And when we first would see that, we'd be like, well, okay, that's confusing. But once you get used to it, it's not actually that hard to, to process and understand. And most of the time, normally, that format doesn't really cause us any difficulty in translation or any confusion in understanding. But every great now and then, you will find an example where due to the lack of punctuation in the original language, we get a little confused as to exactly how to understand something. Verses 14 to 21 are a great example of this. We know for a fact that Paul begins speaking to Peter directly. He's addressing him directly about halfway through verse 14. I mean, in English, there should definitely be a set of quotation marks before the words, if you, there in verse 14. But here's the question. Where does, where does Paul stop speaking to Peter? Where, where does that quotation end? Well, if you're using an ESV like I am, then you see in our translators think that that quote should end at the end of verse 14, that that's all that, that Paul specifically records about his public confrontation to Peter. But if you will look down to chapter 3, verse 1, you will see that it's there we know that there is definitely a change of address occurring, right? In chapter 3, verse 1, he now starts talking to who? To the Galatians, right? So that means that somewhere from about midway through verse 14 to somewhere no later than the end of verse 21, somewhere in there is what he said specifically to Peter, and somewhere in there is probably where he begins to just reflect on what he said to Peter. Does that make sense? There's a switch from quotation to, to reflection. It's all the same content, and so in that sense, it doesn't really matter where we put our English quotation marks, I just want you to understand that, that as we work through this, we're, we're seeing Peter, or excuse me, Paul's, Paul's response, Paul's heart towards the, the situation that occurred there in verses 11 to 13. He's trying to help us understand whether he's saying it to Peter directly or not, or just helping us doesn't really matter. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to begin to focus on the content of the message that Paul has for Peter here in this section. And I want us to begin by noticing how Paul first addresses both his and Peter's former religious, spiritual bias or presupposition. I mean, here in verse 15, we find the statement, which was the focus of my first foundation stone sermon. Paul says to Peter, we ourselves were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, since we have already covered this at length in one of those four, uh, earlier messages, I won't uh, spend a lot of time on this today. It's just simply understanding that this is the way that both Paul and Peter grew up understanding both themselves and the world around them. To be a Jew by birth, not a proselyte, not a Gentile who, got, who converted to Judaism, who simply came to the understanding that, that this was how things should be, to be a Jew by birth, a good old-fashioned child of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is considered by Paul and Peter and every other Jew to be a terrific privilege, a wonderful privilege. And why did they see it as being such a great privilege? Well, two reasons. One, because they were recipients of God's promises, they are the children of God. They've got all those great Old Testament promises that belong directly to them. But number two, also because they are recipients of God's covenant. Specifically, they have received God's law, the Torah, the, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And this is, this is wonderful because then it lets them know what God wants. 
And so because of this, they view themselves as being privileged and inherently superior. Thus, they could, without shame, without any remorse or like blushing at all, refer to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as simply being sinners. Why are they sinners? Well, that's easy because they did not have or obey God's law. If you don't have it, how can you obey it? If you don't know it's wrong to, to do this and you do it, you know, you're a sinner, right? You just That's logical and makes sense, and so you've got the world divided in these two groups. And in this distinction, you begin to understand something about the Jewish religious psyche. I mean, clearly, if Gentiles are sinners before God because they do not have and obey the Old Testament law, then would that not, just logically thinking through this, make Jews righteous? because they do have and obey the Old Testament law? Yeah. And this was just how they saw the world. And when I say they, clearly I'm referring to Peter and Paul, because I think that's who he has in mind here. But this would be true for the vast majority, if not all Jews, in Paul's day. And yet, as we see here in verse 16, both Peter and Paul came to a conclusion that was radically different than what they had assumed and presupposed beforehand and was also radically different than how most other Jews in their day understood things as well. They came to see that a person cannot be justified before God. They cannot be declared righteous before God by observing and obeying the Old Testament law, but only through faith in Christ. Now again, Because we've already laid this foundation stone about the meaning of the word justified, I don't need to spend a lot of time just except just to quickly remind us of what we already know, and that is that the word justified is a legal term that means to declare someone righteous, to declare them not guilty. And when it is used of the act of salvation, it assumes that we are guilty of sin before God, that we are rightly deserving of his wrath, his punishment, But that God will, in love, grace, and mercy, for a reason yet to be determined, we'll get to that in a second, declare us not guilty, even though we are guilty. Well, the question, of course, is how, right? How is such mercy shown? How do we receive such a pronouncement? Well, that's what Paul is explaining. He says that both he and Peter had come to the same conclusion, that this justification before God that both of them desired is not achieved through the works of the law. Now, we never stopped on this one, and I really had thought about and debated doing one more foundation stone specifically on this phrase, but I decided to leave it until we got here just so we could talk about it within the the flow of the text. But let's stop and ask ourselves this question. What exactly does that mean? Or let's even be more specific with the question, what exactly does Paul mean when he says that we cannot be justified by the works of the law? Because for us, when we hear that phrase, I think we tend to think of people who perform certain acts, works, or deeds in order to gain favor with God. Now, notice how I worded that because it's kind of important. They're doing certain things in order to gain favor with God. That's the purpose behind their works. You know, this is the mindset that says, when I die, as long as the good I've bad outweighs the bad I've done, did I say that right? The good I've done outweighs the bad I've done, whatever, you know, that, that God will accept me. As if somehow God can be bought, as if somehow salvation works like social security, and as long as you get your 40 credits, you're good to go. As if somehow God can be indebted to man. Is this 
Is this what Paul has in mind when he says here that we can't be justified by the works of the law? Did, did he and Peter and the rest of the Jews think that they were somehow earning God's favor by the things they did? Well, the answer to that question is no. Not exactly in that way. Not exactly in the same way that people today will often think of that concept. I don't think there was anything in Paul or Peter or the rest of them that would have viewed the Old Testament law as simply like a menu board of options for how they gain favor with God. It's like, well, I guess if I make sure all the males in my family are circumcised and we do all the sacrifices and you know, this and that, okay, that should be enough. Now God will accept me. I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. In other words, if you were to ask pre-conversion Paul, if we're to go back and ask Saul, because remember he changes his name after he becomes a believer, if we're to go back and ask Saul if the act of circumcision or the, the act of resting on the Sabbath or his observance of all of those strict kosher dietary laws would get him into heaven, I am 99.9999999% certain that the answer would be no. None of those things get me into heaven. None of those things directly make me acceptable to God. There's no single act nor any combination of acts that will cause God to accept me. Rather, if he was here explaining it, I think what he would say is that it was one's commitment to God as expressed through conformity to the law of Moses, generally speaking. Huh? What does that mean? Well, I'll try to explain it a little bit. Your adherence to the law, if you were a good Jew, if you're Peter, you're Paul, you're, you're any of these other folks, your adherence to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, is like a confession of faith in God. It, it's, do you believe in God, Paul? Absolutely. How do you show that? By keeping the law. It, 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 they viewed the law as an expression of God's grace to them. And when we, we hear that, I think that's hard for us to process because as American Christians, I think we've heard so long that you know, we, law is opposed to grace. Law on this side, grace on that side, neither the two shall meet. I don't know that the Jews thought of it exactly that way. I think they saw the law as, as God's grace given to them. I mean, how gracious was God to us to tell us what he wanted, to show us how to live. How gracious was he to give us his oracles, his commands, his knowledge. And so if, if that's the case, and, and that's what he wants from us, and this is how we should live, the only right and acceptable response to that kind of grace is to live your life in accordance with what God wants, right? That makes sense. And so we need to make this little bit of a distinction in our own minds, even though it may seem to us like we're splitting hairs a bit on this issue of the works of the law, but, but that division or that distinction ends up being very important because when Paul says here that someone cannot be justified by the works of the law, he is not referring to individual a la carte acts as if somehow those individual acts can make one right with God, can gain God's favor. No, he is referring to the law as a whole, as a means of expressing one's faith that God would accept him 
because of his commitment to an observance of all that God had revealed in the law. You've got to take the whole package. It's the forest in this case. It is not the trees. And that's the distinction between how we tend to think of that idea of not being justified by the works of the law and how Paul would have thought about it. We think of trees. We think of individual acts piled up on top of each other that God will accept. Paul's not thinking of acts. He's thinking of the whole system. It's just bigger and more involved than what we initially think of. Does that help a little bit in understanding what he's referring to here? I'm not going to look if you answer yes or no. Um, His point is that that whole system, the forest as a whole, is not the means of acceptance before God. The individual acts themselves, the trees, are actually good, right? It's good not to murder, right? Say yes. It's good not to commit adultery, right? Say yes, okay? It's good to do or not do a lot of the individual things in the law. Those aren't the problem. Those, a lot of them continue to be true today. It's still good not to murder. It's still good not to commit adultery. It's not those individual things. It's the system as a whole that he says cannot make us right before God. Rather, the conclusion that both he and Peter have reached is that the only thing that God will accept in order to declare a person justified in his sight is faith in Jesus Christ. And again, because we've laid this foundation stone, I don't need to spend a lot of time here regarding the meaning of true saving faith. Hopefully you understand now the the larger significance of what Paul is saying. He's saying that you cannot put your confidence, your hope, your, your trust in this law system. If that is where your hope is, if you think that God is accepting you because of your adherence to this system, clearly you have faith But it's not the right kind of faith. It is faith in the law. But that is not the kind of faith that God is looking for. He wants you to put your faith in Christ, to put your confidence in Christ, to put all of your hope and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, and to put absolutely no confidence, not one single bit in anything else, especially the law. That time is over, folks. That time is done. Something greater than the law has come. Someone, Jesus Christ, has come and he has fulfilled that law perfectly and forever, which means now that thing's been done away with. That's the the old. There's something new here and there is no need to observe and obey that law anymore. God now wants us to put our faith, our confidence, our hope, our trust, not in the law, but in the full and finished work of his perfect son. And that means then that there's no going back. And that's kind of the key point. There's no going back because these two systems are not compatible. They're not overlapping. There's not a completion of like, in the, like you've got to have them both together. There's a yin and a yang. And as long as they're in, you know, you've got it all. No, 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 no. They're, we're talking two completely separate systems. Uh, Scott McKnight, a, a commentator who I've been enjoying here in Galatians, he says it like this. He says, this is why faith in Christ and works of the law are opposites. One cannot opt for Christ's system and Moses' system at the same time because they are mutually exclusive options for salvation. Either one believes in Christ or one chooses to commit oneself to the law. One cannot live under both systems without destroying one or the other's integrity. 
Which is why now, hopefully you might get this understanding a little better, which is why Peter's decision to separate himself from his Gentile brothers there in Antioch was such a big deal. Because the only reason you would do that if you're Peter is because you still think the law is in effect. Because you still think that system has some credence on you. Because God is still going to look at your faith in that and understand that as your commitment to him. The only reason you need to do what Peter did is if you think one can still find acceptance before God in that mosaic system. Well, what is it, Peter? Can you be accepted with God because of that system? Or is it just Christ? Is Jesus enough now? Did Jesus fulfill it or did he not? If he didn't, then you're right, Peter. We need to, we need to separate ourselves from these Gentiles until they get circumcised, until they become proselytes, and they start keeping the law themselves. If they haven't done that, we need to, we need to pull away. But if, if Jesus is enough, then we don't have to do that. So which is it, Peter? Is Jesus enough or is he not? And this is why Paul is publicly confronting him. Because Peter's decision to separate himself from his Gentile brothers has made a public statement that Jesus isn't enough. He's made it clear that he thinks, no, the law is still in effect. We got, I've got to back out of this. I've got to separate. I can't, I can't be with these brothers, Jews and Gentiles. They, they need Jesus, but they also need the Old Testament law. And Paul, Paul can't let that pass without a word. Now, for us, as we think about how all of that, and we'll pause in the text here today, but as we think about how all of that applies to our own situation, I'd like to us, for us to consider this from a couple of different angles. First, I think we need to recognize that there is a little bit of difficulty for us here uh, because, I mean, in terms of directly applying it to ourselves, because for us, to my knowledge, none of us in this room very likely grew up under the Mosaic law because we're not Jewish, right? And, and, and let's be clear, this is, this is one of those passages that is pinpoint focused on the Jewish mind and experience. It is Paul the Jew from a Jewish background speaking to Peter, a Jew from a Jewish background about a Jewish understanding of the law. It is pinpoint focused on that specific understanding. And the message that Paul has in general here in Galatians, but really throughout his ministry, is that Christ has replaced the law. And for a Jew, this would be earth-shattering news. What do you mean? Christ has replaced. Christ has fulfilled. Christ has, he's, he's, this is new. The old is done. Like this is mind-blowing here as he's trying to process a, for a Jew what all of this means. But, but for us, I doubt that any of us grew up with any kind of commitment of any sort to the Mosaic law. You might have grown up memorizing the Ten Commandments and you may know the stories and all kinds of things from it, but there's a big difference between just knowing some things about it and the type of commitment and understanding of the Mosaic law as a whole that, that Peter and Paul would have had growing up thinking that they need to obey the 613 commands of the Torah in order to express their faith and confidence in God alone, their faith coming through that system. That is just different. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we can make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between their situation and our own. However, I think we can make an apples-to-pears comparison. Apples and pears are right, kind of alike, right? It's different, but it's kind of similar. 
Because we may not have grown up believing that the way we express our faith in God is through commitment to the Mosaic Law, but I bet there's a lot of you in this room in the past, and maybe some of you are still to this day, who think that your commitment to God was best expressed through the law of fundamentalism or the law of, of some denomination or the law of some movement or some group or some pastor or some church that, that there is some sense in which to be a believer in Jesus, you had to, to believe in Christ, yes, but, but also, you know, tie 10% of your income and, and never go to a movie and, and, and whatever else may be. Like, that's, that's how you know the true believers. That's how real Christians, people who really put their faith in Christ, live and act. There's a, it's, it's both of those all together. But there's a lot of that. Now, look. Let's be very, very clear about something. I'm in no way ridiculing any of those ideas or things. Because what those things were, uh, what they were supposed to be at least, was they were supposed to be moral standards or guidelines designed to help Christians process what life in, in this world is like. And quite frankly, over the years here at Cornerstone, I have become more and more convinced. Each year, each month, each day, it feels like, I become more and more convinced that all of us in this room should have more of those things, not less. More of those kinds of standards and guidelines and, and decisions and milestones in our own lives and our families to protect us and care for us and guide us. I have no issue with those kinds of things because it's not those individual ideas or anything like them that, that's the, really the problem. What makes those things, though, a problem is when we allow them to move beyond the intended purpose to become something similar to what the Jews had, and that happens quite a bit. That's the danger in it. There's blessing and curse with those kinds of decisions in your life, and, and you have to recognize that. And some of you know this very well because there are many churches and denominations and movements and people and families out there that have done this exact thing. They have created their own law. For whatever reason, whatever motivation, it's their own system by which they now think all believers are supposed to uh, live and express their faith in God. And so while we may not be exactly like Paul and Peter in our view of the Mosaic Law specifically, again, that pinpoint focus of this particular passage, the bigger idea behind what Paul's describing here is still very much alive and well today, even in American Christianity, and we need to be aware of that and we need to be on guard against it. And some of you struggle with this on a daily basis. You don't even realize it's exactly that, but you, you wake up in the morning, and your confidence in God's acceptance is not rooted in Jesus' finished work. You feel accepted by God because you didn't do something yesterday, or you're planning to do something today. You, 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 you're, you're, you're choosing to view your faith through the lens of something that you do or don't do, and I'm telling you, that's a problem. You are not accepted by God because you do X or because you don't do Y. You are either accepted by God because Jesus died for you and his blood is enough, or you are not accepted as all. And that may mean you need to do X or you may not need to do Y. See, that's not the point. That's not the point. Whether you do X or don't do Y, not the point. The point is, is your faith can't be in either of those things. Your confidence is in Christ and Christ alone, or it is in something else, and those systems are mutually exclusive. 
It's one or the other. And we can only be declared righteous before God if we place all of our faith, confidence, and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son for our sins, not in any other system, not works of any law. So is that clear? I just want to be real clear on that from one side, is that we're struggling with the same stuff, just maybe not to the exact degree that Peter and Paul did, but it's, it's a pear. It's not an apple. It's a pear. It's really close. It's good. It looks almost the same, but it's a little different. All right. Second, well, then, then how should we understand our works before God then? Or to say it just a little bit differently, how should we understand the place of works, whether we're doing X or not doing Y or whatever the case may be, within the, the context of the Christian life? Because clearly, clearly, both the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers are not anti-works. Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a very familiar passage, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. There it is, not, not works, because he doesn't want anyone to boast. So, wow, there we go. Clear, salvation by grace through faith, not works, great. Then he continues, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we are not saved by works. We are saved for works. Do you understand that distinction? We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. The expectation is, is that those who are true believers in Christ will go out and, call it perform, for lack of a better word, perform all kinds of works because of their confidence in Christ, because of their acceptance by God through Jesus, which, of course, was James's very point in James chapter 2, that passage we looked at a few weeks ago, right? You say you got faith? You don't have works? Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You want to you wanna try to compare? Let's compare it this way. That's exactly James's point. Paul isn't anti-works. The New Testament isn't anti-works. You just have to make sure that you're thinking about understanding and applying those works on the right side of salvation. If you see them as coming before and as being in some way contingent on your salvation, that's incorrect. If you see them coming after and being the right outworking of your salvation, that is correct. Okay, so it's which side? Is it the basis of your salvation or the fruit? Is it somehow what causes it or is it what comes out of it? That's the difference, and we cannot get those things confused, which means then for us that if we want to be obedient to Scripture, we should be purposefully pursuing good works. Simple as that. Not to gain God's favor, but just simply to fulfill his plan. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10 that God prepared beforehand, beforehand, just like he prepared our salvation beforehand. He prepared beforehand that you and I would go out and live our lives, walk in good work. So I would ask you, what are you doing? Who are you serving? Who are, who are you trying to bless? Uh, what kindness are you showing? What cares of others are you bearing? And, and folks, this isn't rocket science. This isn't like seminary level uh, Christianity. It's basic. It's not easy sometimes, but it is basic. There's a distinction there between easy and basic, by the way. You know, you could start closest to home. What, what good works are you doing in your family? How are you blessing your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your ne nieces, nephews, cousins, you name it? 
Have you even tried? Are you even actively thinking along those lines of, of living out your faith this way in your own family? Think about this room. When was the last time you, and I mean, I want you to think about this very personally, that you did anything to bless, serve, love anyone in, the, in Cornerstone? Could you name it? I mean, tangibly? I don't want you to be like James, like, well, we said go be warmed and filled. <laughs> I said to them on a Sunday, we, we love you and pray. I'll pray about that, which you never do, because that's just a quick, easy thing to say, and I'm guilty of that too. Um, when was the last time you actually showed someone within this room that you actually loved them practically? Some of you, it's been a while. Some of you, it's been a really long while. Um, and that needs to change. What are you going to do, or what have you done this month? What are you going to do next month? What about believers outside of Cornerstone? How are you blessing them? What about the unbelieving world around you, your neighbors, your workplace, your, your co-workers? How are you blessing them? Now, look, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes those opportunities just fall right in our lap. Sometimes you can't even help it. Sometimes you're forced into it, okay, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, sometimes they're as plain as the nose of your face, but I think more often than not, it seems to me that we should be purposefully sitting down and thinking about this. If God has really said to us, and he has, that he has prepared beforehand that we live our lives now in good work, that, that I don't know, what does Paul call it? The fruit of the Spirit should maybe be showing and evident in our lives. Then maybe it takes a little bit of, of effort on our part just to think about how we're going to do that. And so that's as easy as going home, sitting down, make a plan. You're like, that doesn't seem very spiritual. Well, Jesus is the one, remember, who said that if you give a cup of cold water in my name, that you won't lose your blessing. That's a pretty low bar, right? I got a, lot, I got a cup of cold water right here. Who wants it? Right? I, can, I can fulfill that right now. That's a pretty low bar. I think, I think we could do better than cups of cold water. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's all you have, and if that's all you have, that's fine. But I don't want us to be lazy in this and to be haphazard and to not give real thought to it. And so I exhort you to go, or exhort you today to go out and do better than that. Go home and make a list of people in your family, in this church, other believers, whatever the case may be, and then pray for them. Hey, that's a great first good work. And then think about how can you love them? How can you really go out and invest your life in them? Again, Let's be very clear, and I'll close on this, not to gain God's favor. God's not going to look at you differently because you go out and love people. He's not going to accept you more or have less wrath on your... No, that's done in Christ. But as an expression of faith in him and as a way of fulfilling his plan of being the hands and feet of Jesus here on earth. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to be very careful because we recognize that in our own hearts, we are very prone to put our confidence in the flesh, to put our confidence in our own systems and think that somehow you accept us and love us and, and, and will save us because we do these things or don't do these things. We're exactly prone to the same kind of temptation that the Jews were. But we recognize this morning that there is no way anyone can be justified by the works of any law but only through faith in Christ. And so we reaffirm this morning that our confidence is in Jesus and his finished and fulfilled work that he did for us on the cross where he paid for all our sins. But out of that, we don't want to, to even view that selfishly and think that somehow that's, that's just so now we are, are free from, from your wrath. You have a, a grander plan for our life. 
to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. And, and, and Christ himself has set that bar so very simply and low. It, if we're just giving cups of cold water in his name, we, we just are meeting the most basic needs of those around us. That, that is fulfilling what you have planned. And sometimes maybe that's all we can do, but I know we could do so much more if only we begin to live our lives in light of that. And so I pray that you will help us to, to not go out of here and be lazy. Because that's what a lot of this is for us. It's just pure laziness and selfishness where we don't think about others. We only always think about ourselves. And that needs to stop. So forgive us. Help us to go out and to sit down and think and plan and be specific and practical and pray and, and go do good works as the right and proper fruit of salvation. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.